Okay, hey, today we're going through Romans 8, 1 through 8. There, uh, there is therefore no condemnation for those who, know, who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what, uh, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in his likeness of sin, uh, sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that we might be righteous, or in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live in accordance to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but for the mind of the spirit is life and peace. For the mind of the, for the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the very word of God. All right, so those verses right there give us much to ponder. We looked last week at the first four verses, but what we're doing um, this week and next week is we're expanding those first four verses. So verses 1 to 4, now 1 through 8, next week we'll cover 1 through 11. I want to direct your attention again to verse 3, however. We spent most of our time last week on Romans 8, verse 3. This is a summary not only of Paul's theology, but of the gospel, the good news that Paul said he was not ashamed of, that he was eager to proclaim, not only to those who did not yet know the good news, who had never heard it, but even more so to those who had heard it, to Christians as well as to non-Christians. So I am excited this morning to proclaim this good news over us today. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is, in the flesh of the Messiah in the very person, the very humanity of Jesus of Nazareth, God brought condemnation, not on you, but on sin. God did it. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why as Christians, we should be a joyful people because already, right now, God has done the most amazing thing that you could possibly imagine. God has condemned sin in the flesh of the Messiah. Now, we're trying to get our minds around this. We're trying to understand and see not only the truth, the doctrine of it, but we're trying to see what Paul saw that excited him that energized him, that made him a bold, unashamed 
proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus. And Romans 8, really the whole chapter, helps us see it, I think, most clearly. This is at the heart of the book of Romans, and it helps us to see what is so good about this good news. And as we look now into verses 5 through 8, perhaps a way for us to see it in a new way this morning would be for us to recognize that when Jesus came, so we're talking about something that's already been done. When Jesus came, he made known to us, he revealed to us that there are two realms. There are now two different realms in which there are now two different mindsets from which come two different outcomes. There are two realms Right now, two realms in which there are two different mindsets that result in two different outcomes. Two realms, two mindsets, two outcomes. Take a look at these with me this morning. So beginning in verse 5, Paul speaks first to these two different realms, uh, two different realities in which we could live right now. But I want to say this from the start. What we're going to find in the next several verses through verse 11, so everything I'm saying today and everything we're going to see next week, these verses are not an exhortation for you to choose to live in this realm rather than the other realm. The focus on this passage is not on competing moral behaviors that you have to decide between. You got to get this clear. Paul is describing two realms, two different realities in which certain kinds of behavior or conduct emerge, make sense. So before we can even start talking about imperatives, you should do this or not do that. You've got to understand the two different realms that Jesus has made clear to us. So you can see that what Paul is contrasting in these verses, the two different realms, are what he calls the flesh and the spirit. So let's make sure we understand what Paul means when he uses these two terms. So if you go back to Romans 7, verse 5, we will find that Paul could speak of a time when we were living in the flesh. But then he goes on to say in verse 6 that now we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. That's the contrast that Paul is taking up here in Romans 8, verse 5. The contrast is between these two different realms. Realm number one is the realm that's dominated by a power called the flesh. The other realm is dominated by a different power, a power of the spirit, that is God's spirit. We call him the Holy Spirit. Now, to be a Christian means that you've been set free. You've been released from the realm of the flesh. You've been transferred into the realm of the spirit. It's a transference from one realm to the other that Paul speaks of in Colossians 1 verse 13, where he praises God 
because he has delivered us, he says, from the domain of darkness. You see it? The power of the flesh. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So the realm of the flesh is the place from which non-Christians live their lives. And the realm of the spirit is the place where if you are a Christian, your life is lived. Again, these are two distinct realms that distinguish believers from unbelievers and that explain the differences that emerge between them. So I want to say once more, Paul is not talking here about the way things ought to be. He's not saying to you, Christian, live in the realm of the Spirit. He'll talk kind of like that a little bit later in Romans 8. But right here, he is speaking not of the way things ought to be, but if you are a Christian, he's telling you this is the way it is. This is the way things are. This is what is true of you if you are a Christian. Those who live according to the flesh, he says, set their minds on the things of the flesh and vice versa for those who live according to the spirit. So notice here in verse five, take a look at it. The Greek does not use the verb to live here, but rather the verb to be. He is referring not to those who live in accordance with the flesh or the spirit, but rather those who are in accordance with the one or the other. The ESV doesn't make that clear. The New American Standard Version does when it says this, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So this is important in order to understand what Paul is talking about because he's talking about a fact, an unchangeable reality. He's describing people who now are in a different context, a different realm, a different culture. A culture. Think about it. If you travel to a different culture, you're going to find people that are different than you. The culture is the context in which certain kinds of conduct are found and explained. And what Paul is speaking about here is an entirely different realm, a different culture, a culture that is found in Christ and only in Christ do certain ways of living now make sense. Again, he'll come to the conduct soon enough, but notice this conduct cannot be isolated from the culture, from the context that inevitably produces it. And Paul wants you to know, Christian, you now live in a different culture. You now have a different core identity. This is now who you are, not what you should try to be, but what you actually are. Now, the burden of these verses is to explain how it is that the same law can pronounce a verdict of condemnation over and death over some and a verdict of vindication in life over others. In other words, verse 1, why is it that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Verse 2 says... Because Christians have been set free from the law of sin and death, notice, by the law of the spirit of life. Do you see that? What has set you free from the law of sin and death? The answer in Romans 8, 2 is a bit stunning. It's the law of the spirit of life. 
These are not two different laws. These are two different verdicts that come from the same law, and it is only the culture, the context, that explains how the same law has a different verdict. One verdict is condemnation and death. The other verdict is vindication and life. So what verse 3 says the law could not do is explained in verse 4. Look at it. The righteous requirement of the law is better understood as the righteous righteous verdict of the law. The law could not pronounce life over any of us human beings because of the cancer of sin that had taken root. But since God has condemned sin in the flesh of the Messiah, God has now made possible for the law to do what the law was meant to do all along, or what the law wanted to do all along. This good news, this gospel, is not a message only of what awaits us after death. It is just as much a message for the here and now. It is because of the gospel so vividly described in verse 3 that verse 4 can now be true. Look what it says. One of God's purposes for the cross of Christ. Look what it says. Why did God condemn sin in the flesh? Here's what he says. So that... The righteous verdict of the law would be fulfilled in us. The righteous verdict, not the requirement. He's not referring to moral behavior or commands to be obeyed. What Jesus did for us on the cross was not make it possible for us to now keep the law and then on those grounds to be justified. But Jesus did do something in his death that makes it possible for the same law that once condemned us to now issue over us, announce over us a different verdict, a verdict of life. Jesus did not merely neutralize the law, far less did he abolish it. Rather, Jesus turned the law away from announcing a verdict of condemnation and death to announcing over you who are in Christ a verdict of vindication and life. And it's true for Christians living now, not just our hope when we die. So I want you to notice next this present reality the present difference for Christians that are evident in the contrasting mindset. So we've seen that we have two different realms. Because Jesus has come, because Jesus in his flesh brought condemnation upon sin, there's a new realm. There's a new culture in which you've been transferred into if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ. And in this culture, in this context, There's just a a completely different way of thinking. So the verb in verse 5 translated to set the mind and its nominal use in verse 6. Again, we need to read these as part of the distinct cultural realities from which they emerge. What we are reading here are not exhortations to choose between two different ways of living. Paul is not giving us the option to think one way or the other, but describing something that is just the way it is for the whole person. Can I say it this way? What Paul is describing in these verses is not something like an American trying to live as Chinese as possible in Beijing. 
He's saying that Christians and non-Christians have a different mindset, not because of mental effort, but because of where they're from, because of the culture from which they originate. So those who are from the flesh, he says, have their minds set on the things of the flesh. Now, here's the problem. All of us are born of the flesh. We were born united to Adam, fallen, corruptible creatures. And so as such, it's natural for us to have our minds set in a particular way. Paul is speaking here of ways of thinking that all human beings share by virtue of our humanity despite our many differences. Every single human being thinks this way naturally as a descendant of Adam. The mind is the place where sin wages war and takes us captive, Paul said back in chapter 7, verse 23. And he says here, that those who are according to the flesh are held captive to the fleshly way of thinking. They, they couldn't possibly think any other way. It's not even possible to think of, of another way. In this sense, that kind of a mindset is natural because it, it's what comes natural from the context of fallen humanity. But if you are a Christian, then you have been brought into a different culture, a different context, which comes with a whole new way of thinking. The mind becomes set, he says, on the things of the spirit. And this is the explanation for why Christians see everything differently in the world. So it should be no surprise then that Christians would seem a little strange in the world. Christians simply think differently than non-Christians think. And that's why we live differently than non-Christians live. But this morning, I need to say to you, I need to warn us to be careful to notice that the culture that distinguishes us from non-Christians is called the culture of the spirit. It's not some other culture of humanity. The distinction in these verses is not the distinction that you might see between different forms of fallen cultures, but between the culture of Christ and the various cultures of humanity, every single one of which is fallen. Christians, we easily mistake these two. You see, as Christians, we know the fallen culture of the flesh all too well. We've been there. It's from this culture that we have been redeemed, delivered, transferred out of. Because of Christ, we become citizens of a new kingdom, but none of us started there. These verses in Romans 8 do not say that we find ourselves somewhere in between the two kingdoms. Nevertheless, we can easily confuse the two. So we must be careful. Here's what I'm trying to say. We must be careful that we do not make the mistake of equating the kingdom of Christ with any of the various fallen kingdoms of men. Can I be blunt? 
being an American does not equal being a Christian. Being an American does not make you one inch closer to being a Christian either. And and the same is true for any other nationality or subculture. This is not a kingdom that can be co-opted or defined by any particular fallen context or community or culture of man. Are you with me? Your political affiliation does not mean you are closer to Christ than if you were in some other party. Do not make the mistake of thinking that the way you view the world must necessarily be the Christian way because you are a Christian. It is a context in the spirit that lets you see things differently. Now, of course, we all see the world from our own cultural perspectives and political preferences. All of us do. But what we must not do is confuse this perspective with the Christian perspective, which stands alone and against all others. And we certainly must never prioritize our fallen perspectives over the Christian one. This is a challenge for us. Let's just admit it. This is a challenge for us because in the redeemed community, in the realm of the spirit, if you were just in that kingdom and you looked around and you were in the kingdom the way God sees it, you were in the kingdom of God and you looked around, you said, who, who, what do the other citizens of this kingdom look like? Do you know what you would see? We're told what you would see. You know it well, Revelation 5, 9, in this community, you would find people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you know what that means? There is diversity, enormous diversity in the kingdom of God. What unites us is nothing, nothing other than the lamb who was slain and who has made all of us a kingdom and priests to our God. So nothing could be more irreverent to our Lord than to prioritize our relationship with those who look like us or vote like us over those who will forever reign on earth with us. If you are not a Christian, by the way, you have no other option. <laughs> you have no other option. You're going to, you're going to find yourself, only, the only thing you've got is to prioritize relationships with people who look like you, vote like you, prefer things the way you do. But if you're a Christian, everything's changed. If you are a Christian, you have a citizenship this world simply cannot know. So let us be sure then that we are prioritizing the privilege of being the citizens of the kingdom of God over any privileges we might find as members of any other kingdom, fallen kingdom of man. After all, what you and I have been promised, what you and I have been promised is those who are of the spirit is, it's just a much better outcome then we could dare to dream as those who are of the flesh. Because Paul tells us here there's two outcomes. 
two outcomes. The outcome of those who are of the flesh and have their minds set on the flesh, look what he says, is death. But the outcome for those who are of the spirit, who therefore have their minds set on the spirit, is life and peace. Death is one possible outcome. Life and peace is the only other one. There's no in-between here. It's life or it's death. It's peace or it's hostility. Notice, the outcome of the flesh is death. Now, what does he mean? Well, of course, literally, he means death, dying. Death is always the outcome in the kingdom of man. Show me a kingdom of man that has conquered death, and I, let's sign up. There is none. Death is always the end. It's always the outcome. It's always the final result. It's a sobering reality, isn't it? Some of you in 2021 maybe have come to know all too well. I once heard it said, just think, what will the world be like 100 years from now? Somebody said, all new people. This is a culture whose outcome can only be death. And we've become so accustomed to it that it's difficult to imagine the world being any other way. Indeed, I'm perplexed. How would this world work without the reality of death? I can't say I have all the answers to that. I mean, I'm pretty sure, I'm hoping at least, that when we sit down with Jesus in the great feast, that something died is on my plate. You know, I'm kind of hoping that is the way it goes. So I, I don't know how this world would work if there were no death. This is just the way things are, we, we would say. To, to deny death or pretend that it's not going to come is foolish. It's to deny reality. But as Christians who believe our Bibles, we simply must believe that this is not the way the world is meant to be or has to be. The reason why there is death is because it's the outcome that comes from a culture of the flesh. So we live in this culture with a mindset of death. All of us do. It's part of our shared common reality of all humanity. It's the cultural context of sin, of transgression of God's revealed will, of rebellion against God himself. Romans 5.12 tells us, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. But we Christians are weird, strange. What we said in the Apostles' Creed, do you believe it? We believe that the world was made to be different and that because of the gospel, because of Jesus, because of Christmas, the world is indeed different. Again, because the outcome of the spirit mindset, Paul says, is life. Not death, life, the complete opposite. This is the world in which God reigns. 
It's a world in which death is abolished. The last enemy to be completely eliminated, the Bible tells us, is death. And again, because death is such a familiar foe for us humans, ironically, we can maybe just begin to imagine how different the world would have to be if it was no longer a threat. The contrast is in verses 5 and 6, and it couldn't be starker. The, the results that come from these two cultural realities simply could not be more consequential. The claims of biblical Christianity could not be more relevant to the world we all inhabit. This is just not something to be ignored. There is a context. There's a culture. There's a reality with a mindset whose outcome is not death, but life. And if that's true, if that's true, you, you just can't possibly ignore it. It's too um, tangible. It's too real to everyday experience. Because notice that the claim here is not that death must be conceded so that we can finally get out of this material world with its end of death and fly away into some ghostly existence, into a spiritual world that's nothing like the world you inhabit now. That's not the biblical claim. And too many Christians for far too long, that's the way they think. Let's change that thinking because of what the Bible tells us. The message of Christianity, the message of the Christian gospel is verse three. God condemned sin. And do you see what that means, Christian? If sin has been condemned, death is no more. Since sin has ruined the world and brought it under the sentence of death, the claim that sin itself has been brought into conviction and sentenced to death is the claim that this world once ruined has been redeemed. The result of such a claim, if it's true, has to be life rather than death. If that's true, there's no better news. There's no better news. If, if you found out tomorrow there is a cure for every disease you could possibly think of, but except for old age and death, this would be far better news. What good would it be to be healed only to die 20 years later? This is better news. This is more relevant news. How could it be ignored? How could it not be the news of the day? How could it not dominate every headline of every newspaper in the world? How could it not dominate the local or national or state news? How could it not be headline news for all the world to hear? The answer is rather straightforward. It makes no sense in a culture of death. It makes no sense. It can't be understood in a world like that. That's just not the mindset. So a world that is marked by the culture of death will never, ever proclaim the good news of life, even though it's the kind of news the world is longing to hear. So see then that what the Bible announces to us is not an either-or world. In the beginning, the world that was, the world that God created was a world teeming with life. 
Just read it, Genesis 1, the creation story. This is a world teeming with life, not a hint of death. But when sin entered the world through one man, everything changed. The world became marked by death. But the day is coming, the Bible promises, when death will be no more. And all that could be left then is this world teeming with life. And the message of Christmas is that when God sent his son on a mission to condemn sin in the flesh of the Messiah, this promised new world of life began. You don't have to wait for it. It's already here. Where is this new world of life? Where can we see it? We see it only in one place, in the Christ, in the Messiah. This life, this new life, this new world, if you want to see it, can only be found in the one in whom sin and death has met its match. Well, that's all nice thinking, but where's the evidence, you say? The evidence is that in and only in Messiah Jesus, there is a new world, a new creation, because this Messiah, this Jesus, is the one who was crucified, dead, buried, and on the third day rose from the dead, as Romans 6 says, never to die again. The new world has come. If any, the, the new, the old is passing away, the new has come, the Bible says. In Christ, we find this new world with a mindset of God's own Holy Spirit and with the resulting outcome of life. And what do you mean by life? I mean life, like bodily life, the bodies I'm looking at, living forever. A resurrection of the body just as Jesus was raised, life that has overcome death. And because Jesus has already been raised, this resurrection life has already come and indeed is already true for those who are in him, for those who are united to him by faith, as Jesus once said near the tomb of his friend Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, only someone who died and rose from the dead could make a claim like that and be taken seriously. If Jesus of Nazareth, the fully human historical person that we Christians worship, especially on Christmas, if this person is dead, our hope is gone and we have no gospel. But if it's true, then in Jesus, there is in fact a new world, but it's only in Jesus. That's the only cultural context in which you're going to see it. The world outside of Christ is still the world of the flesh, a world plagued by death. But notice it's not just marked by death. It's also marked by hostility, the lack of peace, 
You also know this quite well. Death and hostility are as practical a summary of the news of the world as you could possibly ask for, don't you think? That's why you hate the news. (laughs) It's just death. It's just hostility. That's all there is. But the promise of the gospel is that there is a world of peace, not just hostility, not hostility, the opposite. Again, in a fallen world, it just doesn't make sense. You've come to know conflict just as much as you've come to know death as just the way it is, but we still long for it. In fact, we all work for it. I was talking to an atheist friend just the other day who's very acquainted with the news. I said, what are you hoping for? What do you think? Are you optimistic about the news of the day and tomorrow and what's gonna happen? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know. I don't know. Even right now, we live with the very real threat of war in one form or another, hostility. Of course, we could have peace if everyone would just conform to one prevailing power on earth. If like the ancient Greeks or Romans, some other national government would just take over the world. Everyone okay with that? Well, even if you were, because maybe you're like, well, as long as it's my kingdom. Even if you were okay with that, I have to tell you, a kingdom like that would not last. It couldn't last. Either the new king would die or there would be a rebellion, probably both. But what if there were a kingdom? What if? What if there were a kingdom that had conquered every possible foe? with a king who was immortal, could never die, and a rule, a law, that no one would ever even want to rebel against. That is the promise of the kingdom of God. Those who are in the flesh are hostile to him, Unwilling, indeed, the Bible says, unable to submit to him and his law. But you, Christian, are not in the flesh. Verse 9 says, and that means the kingdom of God has come. Do you see it? If you are not in the flesh, if Romans 8, 9 is true, then the kingdom of God is here now, right now. It is here, but it's only here in the person of Jesus. But through Jesus, you can be a citizen of a kingdom with the only outcome possible is life and peace. Worship the king. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's why we make a big deal of Christmas, isn't it? It ought to be. The reason we worship is not simply the fact that Jesus came, but all that that means, all that that means. This is not fiction 
It's not the silly games that we play around the holidays. This is the real deal. And it's far better news, like we sang earlier this morning, than we could even dare to hope or dream. We couldn't make up a story that would be better than this. <laughs> it's not possible. If indeed in Christ we are no longer in the flesh, the flesh whose outcome is always death and hostility, then wow, we right now in Jesus and through Jesus alone live in a different cultural reality. We live in the realm of the spirit. And in the realm of the spirit, we find a very different perspective, a different mindset that, that always makes us strange in this world. Sometimes agreeing with people so different from us and sometimes disagreeing with those who are just like us because we have a different culture. In this culture, there are people from every tribe and tongue and language. What could possibly unite such a diverse people? The king. The king. We thank you this morning, O oh God, that we are part of a kingdom that even right now, on this Lord's Day, has many outposts proclaiming this good news in every language. Amazing. Amazing. So we have so much to celebrate as we move toward Christmas this week. We thank you, Jesus, for coming. Because what you did was you condemned sin so that the verdict of the law that it wanted to give, the verdict of life, would now be true for us who live in the realm of the Spirit. What gift, what grace. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.